Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Wow, two people are doing okay. It's good to see you. Thanks for coming to church at 8.30 a.m. on a uh, zero degree or roughly uh, day. Appreciate you being here. It's my delight as uh, the pastor of the Mill Church to welcome you here today. If you're visiting with us and would be kind enough to fill out a welcome card, you can do that by going to the mill.church slash welcome, the mill.church slash welcome at any point during the service on your smartphone. So we'll get better acquainted with you. You can also do it by filling out a hard copy form at the back and dropping Dropping, that's a new word uh, to bring out of the vocabulary here. Dropping it in the box at the back again, we're glad uh, you're here. It's also my privilege to introduce to you Dennis Wenzel. Dennis, will you join me this morning? Come on up to the front. Dennis is going to be sharing his story today. This is the year of 52 stories in which we're hearing a different story every week from someone who attends the mill a tale of God's faithfulness. So will you give Dennis a warm welcome here today? You're going to be right here. Let me adjust this a little bit for you. Wrong spot. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm giving you bad information, man. Forgive me. Oh, here we go. What? Oh. Man, they should fire this guy up here. All right. Thanks. My name is Dennis Wenzel, and this is my story. Uh, Born and raised on a dairy farm with seven siblings, we learned the value of working together and providing for a family, and that was all priceless. Together we attended church every Sunday and attended the school in the same location. But salvation wasn't talked about much, but good deeds seemed to be the ticket to life after. This left a void because I was curious, how many good deeds did I need? Could I end up short? How many sins did I have that might cancel out my good deeds? Was God distant or too busy? Was I ignored because of my faults? I felt like I needed him more than I could reach him. God rescued me and answered all that. While working at Stratford High School one night during an open gym, a friend shared the gospel with me. I began to understand the term born again and accepting Christ. Was this filling the void? My testimony may be different than most. Later on, on that same gym floor, as I was refinishing the floor, had plenty of time to think. Something came over me. Was it the Holy Spirit? I went to my knees and asked Jesus into my life. With Christ as my Lord and Savior, I know that he is available at all times, anywhere. A personal relationship means that I am one-on-one with him. Since I know that my sins are forgiven, I'm not canceling out good deeds, and there is no list of faults. I don't have to wonder about my salvation. 
I have accepted his free gift. I totally believe that he died for me. I can put my trust in him. He has a plan that I can trust, not my own plan. My void has been filled. My name is Dennis. This is the year of 52 stories, and Jesus is the hero of my life. on now? There we go. See, Chris even told me it was that microphone before the service, and it went in one ear and out the other. Do I have the right microphone now, Chris, this one that's attached to my collar? It ought to be, I think. Okay. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, if you know Dennis Wenzel, Dennis is as likable a guy as you will ever meet, uh, as uh, sociable a guy as you will ever meet, but he's not like a spotlight kind of guy. He's forever done things behind the scene. And uh, that takes a lot of courage. And I just want to uh, say to you that if you have the story to share of God's faithfulness, we would love to hear your testimony, your story at some point during this year. Brady's going to remind you again at the end of the service. All you got to do to initiate a conversation is to go to the mill.church slash announcements, the mill.church slash announcements. And you'll see a little form. You can click on the year of 52 stories, fill in a bit of your story, and uh, I'll be in touch with you about scheduling a Sunday and talking through that. We'd love to hear it. So um, last week, I'll just jump right in. We got started in a new series in the book of Colossians. You can catch uh, week one on Facebook or YouTube if you were not here. Uh, this was, I said, a series that was going to take us into the summer. So if you're relatively new to the mill, and really we all are, given we're only a 12-year-old church, um, we're, we're just going to take this book of the Bible and read it verse by verse and kind of do a deep dive. It's going to take us a series of, of weeks. Preaching like this is called expository preaching. It's often differentiated from topical preaching. In topical preaching, you start with a topic and you go to the scriptures to support your topic. In expository preaching, you start with the scriptures and the scriptures reveals the topics that you talk about. And so this is an expository series. We'll start with the text. Both of them, by the way, have their place. Uh, I kind of favor expository preaching, always have. Uh, sometimes you get uh, camped out on a verse or verses for extended periods of time, as we did last Sunday and will again today. Uh, so we read the opening two verses of Colossians 1. We talked a lot about calling. We talked a bit about church governance last week, and we explained that our author, the Apostle Paul, was not a Colossian. He didn't live in the city of Colossae, he did not belong to the church. As far as we can tell, he had never visited the church. So he wasn't the church's pastor. Rather, he was a pastor to the pastor. And so if there is an issue or if there is a question or if there is a concern and the church gets stuck, it's at that point that the pastor of the church who will meet, his, his name is Epaphras, 
he would call the Apostle Paul and say, hey, I'm, I'm in the middle of a tough spot. Help me figure this out, please. I, I, and Paul would respond, the master mechanic I com- compared him to last week, and he said, well, you, may, you, you guys may not have seen this really yet at the local level, but I have. I work with a lot of churches, and I'll help you navigate this thing. I have a zoomed-out perspective, not a dialed-in perspective, so let me help you get this back into alignment with God's purposes. To borrow a metaphor from Jack Graham, the author of the 30-day prayer challenge that 60 60 of us are walking through right now on the Holy Bible app or the YouVersion app on our phones or personal computers. Who says personal computers anymore? It's like so outdated, that terminology. I just dated myself. Uh, so we're, we're doing this thing together. We're, we're praying every morning. We're reading a devotional. We're chatting with each other. It's really been valuable. And he, the author of this 30-day prayer challenge, makes the point uh, that when you're a quarterback, you know, your vision is quite blurry. When you're on the field and in the heat of the battle, your vision can be blurred by the backs of offensive linemen. Your vision can be blurred Uh, by defensive tackles trying to stick their hands up in the air and bat down the ball. Your vision can be blurred by uh, a blitzing linebacker in your face that you see coming, you know, at at breakneck speed. Um, The offensive coordinator, however, he doesn't have that problem. He just sits up in the warm, cozy booth, and he lays eyes on the whole field, and he can actually watch the plays unfolding. He can see things that the quarterback can never see when the quarterback is on the field. So he can say, hey, here's where you may have capitalized better the following week as they're reviewing film. He can say, hey, here's what the defense was really doing when all you saw was this. He may say, hey, here's what we need to tweak, right, for next week. So what our author Paul is saying is that he has a unique perspective of seeing the whole playing field and that he is a distinct authority as a spiritual father in the church. In fact, he can't even be there. He sees from a really interesting perspective, I told you last week, in that he's writing this letter from where? From prison. Yeah, from from jail. So he's in jail. Somebody here is thinking, oh, cool, I've done some prison ministry. Uh, No, He was not doing prison ministry. He was in jail. He was a prisoner. Paul's ministering from the inside. He writes a letter from this dark place. Um, He uh, was, uh, you know, uh, nonviolent. You know, he wasn't in there making a shank, for example. He was writing theology, right, and letters to churches. However... However, a few years prior, he would have been in prison, had he been thrown in for a different reason, making a shank. That's what he would have been doing in his spare time. And I'll tell you why. Um, Do you know what a shank is? No? Some of you? It's where a guy just wets toilet paper and rolls it up and rolls it up and adds more and more and more and more toilet paper until it eventually becomes one solid piece of wood, and they use that as a knife to injure other prisoners, right? Prisoners do it all the time. This would have been something that Paul would have done because at one time in his life, he was quite violent. He was an angry man. 
If you're familiar with the book of Acts, where do we first see, where do we first see, where are we introduced to? The Apostle Paul. Paul is running, if you'll remember, with this pack of wolves, this pack of zealots, religious, highly religious people, uh, Orthodox Jews. He is a very devoted man, but he's a very angry man, like the Crusades of the 12th and 13th centuries. Paul did all kinds of evil in the name of religion. Regrettably, uh, sometimes vile and evil things are done in the name of God, but they are not under the will of God, under the auspice of God, under his purpose, his plan. So it was with Paul. Paul was the alpha of this pack. They go from town to town. They go from house to house. They uh, oppose and imprison and sometimes murder Christians. This is what he did for his job under the banner of a pure faith, Orthodox Judaism. And in the book of Acts, there's this young church leader, this young Christian, who is a servant. His name is Stephen. And we see the pack of wolves surround Stephen. They show up, they encircle him, and they throw rocks at Stephen until he dies. This was a public execution. This was state-sponsored terrorism. According to Acts 8.1, Paul was the one that authorized the killing. He sanctioned it. He gave his minions permission to do what they did to the first Christian martyr who was Stephen. So he's in charge. He's violent. He's angry. He's leading this mob of religious people. And in chapter 7, we see, if we back up right before the stoning, we see the pack laying their coats at Paul's feet. Some have said that this shows that he was their ringleader. Others have said more than a symbolic gesture. This is not unlike what you would do at a baseball game with friends during the seventh inning stretch when you were trying to have one of your pitches clocked in one of those fenced-in areas where you try to throw like the pros. What's the first thing you do when you want to throw like the pros? Well, you take your coat off so you can throw faster, so you can throw harder. So these men clearly wanted to let loose. These men uh, didn't want to get blood splattered on their coats. And as they were murdering Stephen in a way similar to Jesus praying for his abusers, his crucifiers' forgiveness of their sin, Stephen prayed for the salvation of Paul and his cronies. Who, who, Paul, who was at that point Saul, was his name. And Jesus is watching this take place from heaven, the execution of the first martyr of the Christian church. And Jesus takes such an issue with what has just happened that Jesus gets up off his throne and he makes an appointment with the man named Saul. Saul was unaware that he had an appointment with Jesus, but Jesus made an appointment with him. And one day when Paul was alone, Jesus knocked him to the ground with a bright light and he rebuked him for the way that he had been treating Jesus' church and he rebukes him for his persecution and Jesus 
answers in that moment Stephen's prayer. Jesus saves Saul. And he becomes a Christ follower. His name becomes Paul. Paul gets radically saved. Paul had been so violent that the early church got into arguments, we read in the book of Acts, over whether or not to let him into their Bible studies. Some of the Christians are thinking he's got a Bible underneath his cloak. Others of the Christians are thinking he's got a shank, right? They're they're not sure what to think about this guy. We know who you were. And so Paul's conversion, I think, makes him an authority to teach us about Jesus in this way. Because he was one of the least likely people to say anything great about Jesus Christ. You guys, I was born in the church, raised in the church. I'm not sure that was good for me in some ways, but in most ways it certainly was. And I will tell you that most of you expect me to say great things about Jesus. That's why you come here. You expect Christ to be made known and for the gospel to go forward. Nobody expected that at one time out of Saul. So while I have a pretty boring testimony, Saul has this crazy event in which Jesus appeared to him directly And um, when that happened, it turned heads, right? People are like, what the heck is going on? I mean, we know who he used to be, but look at him now. He's regularly attending church. What is happening here? I better pay attention to what's going on. So what are you trying to communicate, Pastor? I'm simply trying to show you that the author of this new book that we're studying can be trusted. He can be trusted, and for more reason than simply his dramatic testimony. Another reason, Paul was smart, like really smart. He studied under Gamaliel, who was the greatest rabbi of the day. Paul knew three, possibly four languages. How many of you are like me? You know English and maybe a little bit of Pig Latin. Okay, okay. Paul knew, are you ready, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and possibly Latin. Paul had dual citizenship. Paul was articulate. Paul wrote 13, possibly 14 books of the 27 books of the New Testament. He goes on the most harrowing of missionary journeys. He's a towering, becomes a towering figure in early Christendom. Some say he's the greatest theologian to have ever lived. What's your point, Pastor? My point is that the man can be trusted to teach us about Jesus. Just to be frank and cut right to the chase, there are a lot of people who say that that Paul, the apostle, ought to be discredited and they characterize him as both a misogynist and a homophobe. A misogynist and and a homophobe. C.S. Lewis said some of us suffer from chronological snobbery. This was one of the best Christian thinkers of the 20th century. Some of us suffer from what he called chronological snobbery, meaning we think we are so much smarter 
than the people who came before us. And it's with this attitude that some people make disparaging comments about the Apostle Paul. My point is, we can't just flick the Apostle Paul out of Christian history and say, well, I went to college and I have my own ideas. I went to community college and I have my own ideas about the Apostle Paul. I went to a a liberal theology school and I have my ideas about the Apostle. No, the Apostle Paul must be considered. Paul says he bears the marks of Jesus on his own body. That means he was lashed for Jesus. Paul was adrift in the open sea for Jesus. Paul was snake-bitten for Jesus, imprisoned multiple times. How many of you, if you were in prison, you would not be writing theology? How many of you would be lifting weights and eating hot dogs? Keith, I know. It might. Let me just say this. Um. The people that criticize Paul, I would ask them the question or questions, are are you smarter than Paul? Are, Are you wiser than Paul? Are you closer to Paul in human history than Jesus on the chronological timeline? Was Paul in it further for the money? He had no money. Was Paul in it for women? He had no women. He was single. Was Paul in it for power? He didn't have any power. Did Paul have a big house? Nope, he slept outside. This is why I think we can trust the man. So that's in part your biography. We'll pick up more biographical elements as we go. Now, last week I gave you two things that we must have in order to grow in our faith from the first couple verses in the first chapter of Colossians. I said you have to know who you're going to learn from, and I suggested that we learn from Paul, that he's a great source, a credible source. And secondly, you have to discern God's will. I'm going to give you a third one this morning You have to know who you are. You have to know who you are. We're talking for the rest of our time together this morning about identity. I want to read, if I may, Dylan, if you've got it, cued the first couple verses of this chapter again, and then we'll talk about it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Here's my question for you this morning. Do you consider yourself to be a saint? Do you consider yourself to be a faithful brother and sister? If you grew up in Roman Catholicism, in all likelihood, you do not consider yourself to be a saint. Why? Because you learned the word saint 
in the context of somebody who had lived a purportedly near-perfect life. And so when that person dies, some guy who's aged with a long beard and a clipboard walks around and interviews people about his or her life and asks them questions. And then they wait on a miracle to happen when somebody prays in that person's, that deceased person's name. And then if a miracle happens, the person with the clipboard has to go around and prove and interview eyewitnesses and make sure that the miracle happens. And then if all is well, they are venerated as a saint. So a saint to a Roman Catholic isn't something that any of us could possibly be in this life. But that's not what we read here. Paul's writing to the saints in Colossae, to the living saints. He's writing to the faithful brothers and sisters. So I would submit to you that that word saint has an alternative meaning that we can lean into and hold dear. So my question to you again is, do you consider yourself a saint? Do you consider yourself a brother, a sister, a faithful one? To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ, who is Paul talking about? He's talking about Christians who are living in Colossae. More broadly, this would include you if you're a Christian here today serving Jesus at the Mill Church. Your identity, I've heard it said, determines your destiny. I want to talk about that this morning. Your identity determines your destiny. It sounds like a meme or something you see with a cute picture on Facebook but I really think it's biblical, and I want to share why this morning. Because our culture, if I'm honest, talks a lot about self-help and self-love and self-esteem and self-actualization. What's the common thread running through all those things that I just said our culture talks about? The self, right? The idea is that we are at the center of our world. Everything revolves around us, right? So without any reference to God, secular psychology teaches us that we're at the center. The world revolves around us. And we need to let the Bible tell us who we are and not secular psychology, and I believe what the Bible teaches is that God is the center and we are peripheral. God is at the center and that we are peripheral. That means it takes the focus off of self and it puts the focus onto Jesus. So our place of reference for our identity, for who we are in Christ, is God. Where are we in relation to God? And if you are at the center of your life, here's what I would suggest, and Jesus is on the periphery or the margins, I would encourage you to swap places and to make sure Jesus is at the center of your world. Because here's the thing, if I'm at the center and if I'm right, then who's wrong? Well, God is, because he's at the periphery. And if I'm at the center and I'm smart, 
then God must be dumb. I mean, if I have this new, popular, different opinion about the Apostle Paul, then clearly the Bible must be antiquated. No good, washed up. And if I'm at the center and I am strong, then God must be weak. And, and if I'm at the center and, and I am all-knowing, then God must be rather limited. But here's the thing. Let's flip that. What happens if God is at the center? Well, gosh, if God is at the center, maybe I am wrong. Man, if God is at the center and all-knowing, maybe I do have a few things to learn. Man, if God is at the center and he's strong, by gosh, maybe I'm weak. Maybe I depend on him. Church, that is Christianity. Where Jesus is at the center we are at the periphery. And by the way, if you don't have your identity in reference to God, the only reference that you have is your relationship to other people. Consider this. You think about someone and they're really smart. What do you think about yourself in comparison? That you're really dumb or not as smart as him or her. Or if they're really pretty. My goodness, that makes me... I didn't say it, but somebody over here said it. Susie? If somebody else is successful, my goodness, by comparison, that makes me a loser. Or you compare yourself to a... a worse. You compare yourself to a loser and you discern, oh, look at me. I'm winning at life. My family is winning. Or you compare yourself to someone who isn't beautiful and you're de you determine that you're pretty and you're handsome. You compare yourself, yourself to someone who isn't as bright as you and all of a sudden you feel like you're the smartest person in the room. So when we compare ourselves to others, we end up in one of two places. We either end up in despair because we perceive that other people are better than us, or, or we end up with a heart full of what? Pride. Because we discern that we're better than someone else. Church, some of you are living in the bondage of an identity that was not given to you by God. Let me say that again. You're living in the bondage of an identity that was not given to you by God. Some of you, for example, keep doing stupid things because you identify as a rebel. The reality is, somebody told you at some point that you were a rebel. 
And so you acted like it. And it became a part of your identity. And I'm like, who told you that you're a rebel? That that's who you are? Like, is that on your birth certificate? It says it right beside, you know, your date of birth and your place of birth. A rebel? Well, of course it's not. Jesus didn't say that. And you say, no, my parent told me that when I was little. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting somewhere. So someone else handed you an identity. Follow, follow me here. Somebody else handed you an identity, and now you're like an actor playing a role that somebody else signed you up for. Maybe you've dated a string of bad guys or bad girls. Maybe somebody could rightly ask, why do you keep picking those guys or those girls? And you, and you think to yourself, you probably wouldn't say this, but you think, because I'm damaged goods. I don't deserve any better. And it's like, sweetheart, who told you that? Because Jesus didn't tell you that. The Bible didn't tell you that. Ladies, you, you don't need to accept abusive relationships because you think that's what you're worth. Amen? That's why we say your identity determines your destiny. If you want to read more on this, there, there's a classic out there that's been around longer than since I was in college, 25 years or more, 30 years or more. It's called Victory Over the Darkness. Uh, by a man named Neil T. Anderson. Victory Over the Darkness. You can buy it on Amazon. Excellent book on your identity in Jesus. Some of you would say this more genuine, uh, more uh, not uh, genuinely, but uh, generally, and perhaps genuinely. Uh, I am a sinner. You'd say, I am a sinner. Is that true or is that untrue? The Bible says that's true. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God, right? I am a sinner. Yet, yet, Sinning is what we do, not who we are. And I want to make that distinction in my closing comments this morning. Sinning, sinning is what we do. It is not who we are. Sainthood, sainthood is a word that describes the totality of who we are as Christians. We're sinners by nature. Yes, we all, Augustine said this, uh, we, we all are born in original sin. We don't have to teach kids how to be bad. We have to teach them how to be good. It's a part of our human nature ever since the fall. We sin by nature. We also sin by choice. We choose to sin. There are things we do that are pitted against God's plan and purpose for us. But the Bible begins, might I remind you, in Genesis 1 and 2 with holiness, not sin. Sin doesn't enter into the picture until Genesis chapter 3. What happens before sin? The Bible begins, we are made in the image and likeness of who? 
of God himself. Bestowing, God bestows upon us dignity and worth. See, our identity was established before our rebellion took place. Think of it this way. If you have given yourself to Jesus Christ, and if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you've received his salvation, his forgiveness, there will come a day, we are told, when you will never sin again. Let me put it to you this way. The last day that you live will be the last day of your sinfulness. The last day that you live will be the last day that you sin. A day is coming, glory to God, where sin, which we may have thought was our identity, will be proven to not be a part of our identity. Because if it were a part of our identity, it would last in and through eternity. But it's not. That's good news today. So the day you die is the day that your experience with sin dies. You will see Jesus Christ face to face and you will be like him in perfection and in obedience. Free of pain. Free of sorrow. Free of hurt. No more tears. It's like better than Johnson and Johnson. No more tears. Now I'm going to use, again, the word, I have used the word differently than the way that you Catholics are used to using the word. But just let me say clearly, in conclusion, in a biblical context, sainthood is something that is given to us by God. It is not something that you earn. It is not something that another Christian deems upon you after you die. You could give your life to Jesus this morning and become a saint like that. Today. Right now. You didn't earn it. You can't lose it. You can't boast in it because it again, wasn't something that somebody looked at your life and said, man, he had better good things, better list of good things and bad things. I think he should be a saint. Christ did it. And the same Christ has a future for you in heaven and on earth before heaven if you discover who you are. Because if you know you're not a rebel in Jesus but you're a follower, but that's who you really are, that'll change and determine your destiny. If you believe you're a forgiven daughter of the king and you're not some object, but you're a chosen vessel of Jesus that he adores you, you'll be more selective. Same with a gentleman. You'll be more selective. You'll find someone that sees you as such. And if you're violent and angry, like the Apostle Paul or Saul, Jesus can make an appointment with you and he can change your name. 
Change your identity. Change your stars. Amen? Amen. Will you bow your head this morning? I just want to ask, is, is there anybody here who would say, I need a new name, Pastor? I have believed something that somebody else said about me for far too long. And, and because, and I have lived as though the lie was true, I accepted an identity that somebody else gave me, and I have been an actor playing a role. And it's hit me today that that's not who you, Jesus, said that I am. Would you just raise your hand so I can see that's you? Awesome. Awesome. Praise the Lord. Awesome. Cool. And when anybody else say here with heads bowed and eyes closed, I just realized I want to become a Christian today. I'm not a Christian. I want to become a Christian. I want to say yes to Jesus. I want to spend eternity with him. I know he's preparing a place for me. I want more of God in my life. Would you raise your hand this time? I want to trust in Christ today. All right. Well, Heavenly Father, I just pray for those three that lifted their hands today and have believed a lie, what somebody else has said about them and how that lie has informed how they've acted, how they've behaved. Lord, that you would have a dramatic encounter with that individual and change their name, change their identity. Lord, let them discover who they are in you, which is someone who is whole and pure and right because of not what they've done, but what you've done. We love you, Lord. We thank you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, I just uh, wanted to share with you, if, if you raise your hand or otherwise, if you've just been you know, confused as to what my identity is in Christ or interested in, in this, this topic, again, Neil T. Anderson's Victory Over the Darkness. Neil T. Anderson's a classic, wonderful work. I think you can buy it for 11 bucks on Amazon. Uh, I'd be happy to remind you of it if you forget. Great book, okay? I'm going to pray for our offering. We'll give, and then Brady will pop up for a couple of announcements. Heavenly Father, I just thank you, Lord, that you have and are taken, taking care of us. I thank you, Lord, for the people who have who have sacrificed and who have gave generously in order to enable a church to be birthed 12 years ago and to continue to grow and, and to thrive and to reach people in central Wisconsin. And I just pray that you would, that you would bless them today, Lord, uh, that you would uh, honor their sacrifice and, and care for them and provide for them. And I pray, Lord, for those here who have yet to, to get engaged with your economy and understanding how, Lord, we are giving as an act of worship because of everything that you have done for us, that they would experience you, that they would worship you in this way too. 
in honoring you with what you've entrusted to their care, that they'll be great stewards. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your blessing over our church family in Jesus' name. Amen.